Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to J Israel the Teacher's Lounge, where we keep you in touch with what's going on in Israel. And I am here as always with my co-host Alan Goldman. How's it going, Alan? It's going great, Mike. All right, well, no coffee again this week. It's uh, back on Skype, a little uh, post uh, Yom Yerushalayim in our time, whenever it is you're listening to this. And uh, we thought we would talk this week about what's pretty much been the big news story this week in Israel. And that is the <laughs> opening of the new Japan Japan in the Gush Etzion Mall. <laughs> what opened? A new uh, Japan, a new uh, uh, Asian food restaurant. Ooh, exciting! Yeah, so that's pretty much been the big news around here. What's big is that I assume in Nehusha also that's what people are talking about. Yeah, pretty much. That's you know, uh, you know, it doesn't get much more exciting than that, other right. than the dogs barking. Oh yeah, and the cats screaming. Uh, the other news story that was big this week was uh, the visit from President Trump. Should we also talk about that? Uh, I know a little bit more about that than the Asian restaurant that opened in the new mall, but I don't know. We could go either way if you want. Let's start with Trump. So he, okay. so far he's been, as a time, at the time that we are recording this, and I, I don't think we're going to be addressing any of his uh, domestic problems at the moment, like budget and investigations and all that stuff, correct? We're going to focus on, we're really interested in the Middle East. He's already been to the Vatican and had a very nice day with the Pope, but we're not going to discuss that. I think the two visits of interest to us are Saudi Arabia and Israel. And in Israel, he made several stops. So I think those are, those are of note. And just some perspective on what, if anything, is the meaning of any of this. And then I thought we'd talk a, a little bit about our expectations from foreign leaders in general and United States leadership in particular. And you're making okay. a face. Okay. So what do you okay. think of, uh, what do you think of his Saudi Arabia stop? I thought it was, uh, uh, pretty, pretty interesting. You know, I mean, they were already talking about it before, especially in the talk shows in America about how, you know, it was going to be a lot of pomp and circumstance and, and Trump likes that. And, you know, the, the palaces and apparently they had huge pictures of the king and Trump um, uh, on the buildings on the way from the airport to the palace. Yeah, um, they, they, it, it's funny. You see a cultural difference. Like a lot of their symbolism looks a little bit odd to us. I noticed that they didn't hold hands, which I've noticed past presidents end up holding hands with uh, Saudi Arabian royalty as they walk, which I guess is a thing there that it's more comfortable for powerful men to walk around holding hands. Uh, you know, and you had the sword show, the sword dance, the the uh, the fight over did he bow or didn't he bow? Very important political issue that we really have yeah. to get to the bottom of. And the fact that the women didn't cover their hair there, but now they're covering their hair in the Vatican. Well, it's, you know, things like that make me crazy. I mean, I guess it's because so much of news media today is visual, so these images and and. I don't know, you know, like in audio, you call it a soundbite. What do you call it when when there's a 30-second video clip to roll in the background and analyze a light bite? I mean, I don't know what the equivalent of a soundbite is, but, you know, you can watch her seemingly push away his hand, and that can generate all kinds of conversation. It is absolutely amazing to me 
how much time, energy, and effort can be put into analyzing shtuyot. But let's <laughs> let's see if we can avoid all of that meaningless stuff, which will probably, well, yeah. I'm not so sure. Uh, the, the pomp and circumstance wasn't shtuyot because I think that that was actually the point of the whole, the whole, you know. Well, of course. I mean, uh, isn't that the point of all these trips? I mean, look. Yep. Today, in the 21st century, no president ever has to leave the White House. No foreign leader ever has to leave the building to do their job. Absolutely. So, and so he, and it was to show, you know, to get, you know, well, the, the, right, is to sort of, it was this big over gesture, you know, Trump's uh, uh, was not necessarily um, uh, during the campaign so favorable to to Muslims or Islam, let's say. So, you know, that was a huge gesture, but. But in more importantly, really, it was, I mean, that's what the dog, the more important is the shift in American foreign policy. I mean, it's, he's made a clear shift back to the, you know, the, the Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, um, uh, allies of America, as opposed to the, the Iran, um, uh, that shift that Obama had made. So part of that, right, the, the, the Obama administration in trying to reach out to Iran and make a difference there, to a certain extent, alienated the Sunni Arab world. The Iranians, of course, aren't Arabs, they're Persians. And as opposed to most of the Arab world who are Sunni Muslims, the Iranians are Shia Muslims, so those are two pretty important differences. And in trying to reach out to them, the Obama administration, to a certain extent, alienated the Sunni Arab states like Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the UAE. Trump, in smacking back, uh, I think I would say did some positive things, in my opinion, and did some uh, and and I guess I'd say missed some opportunities also. There's, I'm not well, I'm not a big fan of analyzing people's uh, of analyzing leaders' behavior, presidents' behavior based on who I vote for. I say let's see how he did, and you know, try to as fairly as possible grade his Saudi Arabia appearance. So he handled all the pomp and circumstance just fine. It's pretty much up his alley. What did you, any, the speech I thought was an interesting combination of what you're talking about, identifying the policy shift. First of all, he sat and listened to King Salman rail against Iran. Right. And then he himself basically said that Iran is the source of all the problems in the Middle East. Yeah, he definitely laid out a, 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 I thought a compelling vision of what the Middle East should be, of how the Arab world, which used to be great world leaders in science and technology and culture, they should be that again. And I, right. I, I think that's an important point that doesn't get get articulated enough. He he kind of said without saying. You guys are way behind, and you got to catch up. Right. On the other hand, right. Uh, uh, you know, not on the other hand. So first of all, he did sign this big uh, arms deal yeah. that was in the works already. We could say it was already in the works of President Obama. So as much as okay. we said there was a shift of Obama, so well, but continued. by combining it with the trip, he 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 adds to it a particular political momentum. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. On the other hand, he was a very short on details of anything else. Well, that he, well, that's always going to be a problem. 
and but also like what you're talking about, okay, the Arab world has to be leaders like they once were. Well, sort of short on details about how you're a leader in the modern 20th century, 21st century. And that you know, and that to me was the big misfire it, because while and we talk ignoring the ignoring ignoring the autocratic, very right. backwards nature of uh, of the Arab world. Right. I don't know that he understands systems well enough. In other words, he he said that the main thing they have to do is defeat terrorism and extremism, and once they do that. They can be a normal part of the world. That's just not. That's just not right. Like it's not. It's, first of well, all, even, yeah. yeah. First of all, I don't know that you can defeat extremism if you're if you don't have stable, democratic, middle class nation states. Which was more or less for President Obama's, uh, you know, point with that world when he said, you know, you have to, you know, you have to give people hope. You have to give people something to. To, to strive for, right? Right, but I, I don't think you could argue that he was effective. He definitely yeah. relayed that message, but I don't Obama. think, I don't, yeah, I don't think Obama, you could say, was effective at all in uh, get, you know, generating any sort of momentum for change. Well, let's face it, he didn't really succeed so much in America either. He was followed up by Donald Trump, so whatever it was he was trying to imprint on American culture it doesn't seem to have really taken okay. either so and i don't know that you can say that the bush administration was particularly good at well uh, let, uh, let the, the president yeah go ahead bush, well the bush administration invaded iraq and afghanistan yeah. threw the middle east into a tizzy yeah, as much so, as blame obama for not getting us out of it in a good way is the Bush administration that got us into it. Well, and since since one of the stated goals of the Bush administration was to increase freedom of democracy, the President Bush said he loved Natan Sharansky's book, The Case for Democracy, which is really an excellent book. And the thesis of the book is that we shouldn't be dealing with other nations just based on realpolitik and practical uh, shared uh, interests, we should be fostering democratic values as best we can. That was a stated goal of the Bush administration, and man, oh man, that did not work. Uh, I don't think you could say that Obama was good at getting it to work. Uh, and and Trump has decided apparently not to address it at all. And that's so that that's a big so that's a bit of a big question in a sense of can you re, is, is there anything that really can change in the is there anything that anybody from the outside or from the west can do to really change our neighbors here to being more western and democratic well that's why i saw that's why i said earlier that one of the topics i want to address is do we have at all realistic expectations of what we expect western leaders to do here right so exactly so i'm asking what do you think like oh trump's going to come in and he's going to do he's not going to do anything there's not nothing what do you think an American president can do here in the Middle East? Well, so do you think a $110 billion arms deal is a good idea? Uh, I mean, in the Israeli press... Uh, that's, a practical, that's a pretty practical move that's going to, you know... That is a practical move, and it depends. It really does depend. De- uh, Defense Minister Lieberman here in Israel is worried it's going to start an arms race in the Middle East. I, I don't know. It depends. Like anything else, you have all these, you know, you have 10 plates spinning which is like an Ed Sullivan image, so I don't know why anybody would get it. But you have all these things, and you're trying to keep them all balanced. I didn't even get it, and I usually get you. <laughs> a lot of balls in the air. How about that? And you want to keep them all moving. So, so 
can he turn are they, this? Are, are they glowing orbs? <laughs> wow, that picture. That was one example of getting the imagery really wrong. I'll post that picture, man, if anyone didn't see it. If they, they look like James Bond villains. It's just the wrong imagery. At, at the new center to combat extremism in Saudi Arabia? Anti-terrorism. Yeah, look, the, 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 what I thought was smart was it wasn't just rhetoric that everyone says that Trump doesn't have any details, but that was a specific policy that we wanted to see in the Middle East, which is, and, and for years, terror, terrorist organizations have been financed out of these Sunni Arab countries, Saudi right. Arabia in particular. And the, and the kingdom would always say, look, that's not the government, that's Saudi citizens, what are we supposed to do? And now the Trump uh, administration is basically trying to say to them, well, tell them it's illegal. Well, there's, and there's two things about that. One thing, I, was, I forget who it was I was reading today who pointed it out. I forget what article. But, you know, Wahhabism, which is the, 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 the main, you know, character in the Saudi um, royal family, is also the stream of Islam that sparked al-Qaeda and, and its continuing offshoots. So, like ISIS. Uh, and Saudi very Arabia serious. works very hard to make sure that that branch of Islam is the one that's practiced around the Muslim world. They spend a lot exactly. of money on on exporting it to Africa and other places. Exactly. It's a, it's, it's um, a, I, I, I'm always torn because on the one hand, I think that a foreign leader coming up. Look, uh, uh, if you're if you're president of the United States, you're not going to be down in the in the details making everything happen. It's your job as a leader to create a big picture agenda and make sure that it that it's getting done. So Trump in Saudi Arabia presented this image of the Middle East that could be and said the solution is uh, getting rid of extremism, actively really doing it, not just saying that you're against it by making it illegal to support them, cut off the funding and teach and change, create a culture that opposes it. And we will help you by arming you to make you the powers in the region, and we will join with you against Iran. That's right. how I took his message. That 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 paragraph to me summed up his his messaging. So, so, he didn't mention Israel and Saudi Arabia, which I I, well, I, that, I just want to say one more thing about the Saudi Arabia thing with the terrorism, and you said and the claim that it's the citizens who pay. You know, it's not the government. Well, again, we mentioned before, it's an autocratic government. They don't let women drive. Right. They can't stop individual citizens from giving money to terrorist groups. That's that's ridiculous. Well, right? it's, it's it like, is and it isn't because it's not it's not it's not. Well, I don't know if you have citizens in the kingdom, but subjects. It's not exactly subjects. It's wealthy aristocrats okay. in the royal family, and nobody wants to throw their cousin in jail or cut off their hands. The, well, exactly. So, so so are they are they really individuals when they're connected to the royal family and? Well, Trump is essentially saying to the royal family, you're going to have to choose sides. You're going to have to either start pushing your own people in line or – and if you do so, you will have America at your side against Iran. Or do you want to allow all this malarkey to go on and then you're going to lose us as an ally or at least have us much less of an ally? Right. We've already signed the $110 billion arms. Uh... Correct. Listen, it's not – it's not dumber or less plausible than Obama administration policy or Bush administration policy. 
I'm just, at the, I just, I think the forces in the Middle East, I think there is a, you know, the, the, the racism of lowered expectations that Western leaders think they can come into this part of the world and seriously change the dynamics. The inertia here is not, is not something that you can easily, you know, it's like, oh, well, there's a fire hose showing and I'll take a, you know, a crazy straw and stick it in the fire hose and redirect the flow of the water. So, so that makes us that makes us a good transition to what's here. Then the, and the new the new as every new president or president uh, term comes in the new push for for Middle East peace or the end of a term too. Ba-ba. So breaking the inertia in Israel. What do you think? Uh, breaking the inertia in Israel. Well, again, really, really a paucity of of detail, and and he and 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 it really matters. In other words, well, if, so you're not, far. if you're not telling BB and you know, and I need you to do X, Y, and Z, and you're not telling Abbas I need you to do A, B, and C, then you're not going to move. The, I don't see how you're going to move. Saying that both said they're interested in peace and will keep the ball rolling. Now it could be again he's just trying to generate a, a, a context, and then the details will come later. I guess well, that's the theory. I don't know if you've seen the stuff that Dennis Ross has been saying. Who is no, I did. Has, yeah, has 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 a, quite a bit of expertise in this. Why is that? Dennis Ross. Who is Dennis who's Ross? Who's been at least twenty years, at least more, more than. Well, he was he was the, he was Oslo. basically the guy Oslo. running the, from the American side the Oslo process, the Camp David process under Clinton, right. Camp David too. So he's been at least you know doing this Palestinian Israel I think twenty five years and so maybe more I don't know but so he actually thinks that Trump has a very good chance a better chance than the last couple of presidents he thinks that actually what he did in terms of bringing a boss to Washington and then meeting him in Beit Lechem is a major major move building a boss up like that is huge he he seems to think well it is a major move if at the end of the day a boss can deliver in other words a boss was becoming. As he gets older and has achieved so little and won't hold elections and Palestinians see little sign of progress, he's been diminishing in importance in the Palestinian world. And sitting, you know, having, bringing President Trump to visit him, forget that he was invited to the White House. Trump came to visit him. Yeah, but he saw, but they saw each other twice in a month. That's huge yeah, yeah, for yeah. Abbas. So this is, is, this is something that puts Abbas on the table. Now that you've put him there, what's he going to deliver? And this was my issue. Right. This was my issue with Oslo with Arafat. We're going to turn him into somebody who can make peace. Okay, you, you can. I, I don't think he will, because I don't think he thinks it's in his interest. I don't think right. he wants the Israeli army out of the West Bank. Abbas. Yeah. If the Israeli army leaves the West Bank, then he has He's to. Done for. He has to stop a civil. He has to win a civil war, or preempt it somehow. Before the Israeli army, they don't have to slaughter every. I I, don't, I just don't see how he would. I, I don't. So, so, talk, so I think you need to go into detail a little bit more about that for our listeners. Who's what's the civil war that's going to happen in the Palestinian? Do you think? Well, look, politically, Abbas is the head of the Fatah party, which runs the Palestinian Authority. They lost the last time they had an election. What year was the election? Which one in Gaza or in the West Bank? Both. They had, Hamas won the elections among the Palestinian people in 2000. What year was that? I think it was 12, 11, 12 years ago, I think, already. Something like that. 2006? Six, 
Yeah, 2006 or seven. 2007, I think. 2007? 10 years. I don't know. Abbas wouldn't step down. Fatah, and, and, and I think that and people were shocked. It was definitely at the end of the Bush administration because they pushed very hard to have elections, as if somehow elections make a democracy. Elections do not make a democracy. You can have... Uh, the beginning of the process, not the end. Or part of the process. Uh, it's optional. I think elections are optional in a democracy. Athens was the truest form of democracy ever. It wasn't representative. Every citizen had the right to vote. And the leader was picked by lottery. Everybody took a turn. So the election, it's the freedom and, and, and it's that people rule the, themselves and the government serves the people that makes a democracy. Right. Sorry, I'm trying to look up the last election, but it's so, not coming up. So what you so had was the Bush administration pushing for elections in a society that doesn't believe in human rights and freedom in the way that happens in the West. Yeah. When you push a, a culture that doesn't understand the principles of individual liberty and you push them to have elections, you're not going to get... Look at Iran. Hard-pressed to say yeah. Iran's a free country, and yet they have a certain degree of, of, uh, of fair elections. Their elections are limited in scope, but they're voting for their president, as opposed to a place that Trump loves, like Saudi Arabia, which is a monarchy and has zero input from the people. So, so what are you going to say? Iran is a freer country than Saudi Arabia? I don't know. I think voting is helpful, but it, it's, it's not sufficient. So asking them to have the vote pressured the Palestinian to put to a vote who they wanted as leaders, and they rejected Abbas and the Fatah party in favor of Hamas, probably because Abbas's party, Fatah, is so corrupt. Right. And when he wouldn't step down, in Gaza, Hamas overthrew the Fatah leadership and took over Gaza. Right. They threw the fuck. But that was throughout. What? Nothing ahead. Sorry. And 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 he's been. You know, I, I think it's supposed to be officially according to the setting up of the Palestinian Authority. There's supposed to be elections every like four years or something. Yeah. Well, he hasn't done that. And they every time they that's talk. Just even that's just maybe in 2005 because I think in 2009 was supposed to be the last elections. Well, every time they, they come up with the talk about having holding elections again, they do polling and then they decide not to do the elections again. It's right. a mess. It's a mess. So he's, he's not really in control because of the uh, consent of the governed. He's in control because uh, he wouldn't step down. And what Israel, Israel in controlling security in the West Bank is preventing a, a civil war between Hamas and Fatah. In the West 2005. Bank. 2005. Was 2005 selected for a four-year term. Yeah. Yeah. And in Gaza, he's not really in control. And every few years, there's talk about having a closer relationship between the Hamas party and the Fatah party, having unity between, which, of course, leans him away from the peace process in the West. He's walking a tightrope, and any yeah. anything jarring could knock him off that tightrope for political power. It, it, it's, it's such an unstable situation that I, I just don't see how he's going to consider it in his interest to pursue peace. And let's be honest, you know, 
he's going to have to take serious risks in the hope of something better for himself. And let's say he cares about the Palestinian people. Okay, now... And Bibi, let's be honest. Is it in Bibi's interest to take serious risks? Never. So there you go. So here you have, once again, and here's the difference. When peace initiatives do work in the Middle East... Let's talk now. Why isn't it in in Bibi's interest to take serious risks? His whole, he built this whole coalition in his in his second term. Well, it's really his third term, I guess, but it's his second consecutive term. Uh, is totally a right wing. No, it's his third consecutive term, I think. The other one was his third? fourth. No, I don't so know. it's his fourth term. So, so it's totally built on a right wing coalition. They'll rip him to right. shreds. So he could flip it to elections again. So basically what we're saying is that what would happen if BB takes any risks, he's in fear of crashing his government and would have to go to elections again. He, and he has to tell the Israeli people, I'm taking a shot at this working with this man, Abbas, with this culture at this time. We see what's going on Palestinian t- television. And I'm going to move 100 to 200,000 Jews out of their homes in the West Bank, on the gamble, that this is going to work and make everybody's life better. Here it is in a nutshell. Where did the initiative come from? When the Egyptians call Israel and say, we want to make peace, that'll work. And America can actually be helpful. Right. Well, I mean, that was also with Oslo. Right. Oslo, whether you like it or not, whether you think Oslo was good or bad... The initiative came from the Palestinians and the Israelis, and only after they more or less were in agreement did they bring the United States in for its. Uh, Listen, for it successfully its, uh, changed the status quo in Israel and the West Bank. Whether it actually, it didn't it certainly, obviously, didn't succeed in the long term, but it made a lot of achievement because it was driven by the local parties, at with help from the outside. Ask for help for outside after it starts. Jordan and Israel made peace. They basically. We're ready to make peace anyway. Bringing the idea of pressuring the Israelis and the Palestinians to the table has never worked. Maybe it could this time. So I, what? So I, yeah. I, 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 I find it hard to. I guess I guess it's Trumpish to talk about the most amazing deal, the most fantastic deal, huge deal that's unbelievable. Nobody's ever made a better deal. But I, I just don't understand why we don't change the talk to how do we create small steps to increase cooperation and trust? Well, isn't that a little bit what BB wants? It's what BB says he wants. And then he... Sounds skeptical. I, I don't see any real actions. It, you know, so, Listen, we were talking earlier about the pomp and the circumstance and the imagery. Well, you know what? That's a big part of what leaders do in a democracy. Right. You have to create a story through and BB got his house painted. BB got his house painted. Uh, he's not creating that story. Right. He's not. And 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 he's not he's not te- he's not showing the story of we are the people who always are trying to do anything we can for peace. That is not the story he's telling in Israel. That's not the story he's telling in the world. And partially because the Israeli voter does not believe that it was it, it, it's workable, so, so they've de- and they've despaired of changing the world's opinion to a large extent. I think 
So for our listeners in America who aren't as tapped in, just sort of like, what? So what is the what is the story that BB's telling? What does he? What story does he tell? Uh, the story he tells is we're a vibrant, wonderful country. We've been here a long time, and these Palestinians are supporting and inciting terror, and uh, the, we can't work with them. And not only that, not only Palestinians, the Iranians. Oh, right. Yeah, we're 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 under threat. We're under constant threat, and we have to be vigilant, and we have to right, right? be strong because the Jewish people can't go back to being uh, dependent or appearing weak. Right. It's right. that all that matters is a show of determination and strength. Right. And that is almost a classic, you know, Zionist revisionist Jabotinsky. Well, I think so, but I but I I, I don't know that he's always applying it correctly. In other words. Uh, Jabotinsky was also an outspoken defender of liberal humanistic values. Right. And Jabotinsky also believed in the concept of Hadar, of always presenting oneself with dignity so that you could like me or dislike me, you know, but darn it, you're going to respect me. And I, I don't know that Bibi has managed to present himself on the world stage as somebody of great dignity who all heads of state at least have respect for. You know, they would be frustrated with Begin, but he came across as somebody to, you know, who earned their respect, even if he aggravated them. Right. I, yeah, I don't, I don't think, I'm not so sure a lot of people in Israel respect him either. The, the line in Israel, we've talked about this before, is always, what's the alternative? He gets the votes and then voters say, why did you, and when they're asked, why did you vote for him? Well, I don't see an alternative. Nobody's presenting... A vi- nobody's presenting a vision for the future or, or a set of steps with the Palestinians, and I, I think that's reasonable. What frustrates me is pol- uh, politicians in Israel can be presenting how to make Israel better, how to solve our internal problems, and I think you'll get voters who go more and more with that because if we, we obviously are not in control of the Palestinians, they're going to determine their own fate, and if they, if they can't you know, improve this status quo, then that's it. But we still have a lot of things to work on here internally. And that's what, that's what I want to hear from Israeli politicians more. But I, I I find it odd that you have English speaking Jews who talk about the president as if he's either going to save Israel or destroy Israel. As if the American president has this huge control over the fate of Israel, as if the United States has huge control over the fate of Israel. I, I find that endlessly Surprising. I wrote a blog post about it recently, going through how people still talk about Nixon as saving Israel in 73. I, I just think there's this weird feeling of, you know, America's the big daddy and it's always going to come in and save Israel, or America's the deadbeat dad and it's not really taking care of Israel. And Israel's Israel. Well, I may, and maybe I may annoy people with this comment, but it could be a, a bit of. You know, it gives the American Jewish community more uh, legitimacy to stay in America, right? You always hear, well, if they're you know, often here, it's important to have Jews in America because they need to lobby the American government. Yeah, I'd really be curious what people th- who listen to this podcast think about that. I would love to hear some feedback on that question because I, I find that so odd. America, to argue that American politicians are kowtowing to Israel because of Jewish pressure 
is not only, I think, demographically wrong, if you look at American public opinion polls and how much Israel is favored by American non-Jews, it's, it's just not true. Certainly Trump yeah. voters who, you know... Look, it's your point also, it's your point also, uh, uh, a, a government or country is always going to, and they really... Do what's in their own interest. In their interest. And right now, Israel's in the interest of America. Yeah, That's and here's the, the crazy thing. Let's say, and I'm not, I'm not saying millions of American Jews are going to make Aliyah or will make Aliyah. I understand that they're not going to. But let's say half of American Jews made Aliyah, three million Jews. Let's just imagine, hypothetically. So that now Israel has about 10 million Jews living in Israel. Four or five million Arabs between the Jordan River and the sea. Maybe, let's say, six. Mm -hmm. Numbers are very hard to come by. Well, it, the, the demographics problem changes enormously. Let's say you have over 2 million Arabs in the West Bank. And you add them to citizenship here in Israel. So the political problems in Israel would change so drastically that the idea that somehow we're dependent on American Jews for political support, I don't know, I find that very strange. I find that very strange. Not to mention, we're celebra we just finished today celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Six-Day War, which Israel won without American help. Those were French fighter jets that defeated the, uh, the Egyptian army. Yeah, 50 years ago was a different time then also. Yeah, without any, and I say this without any lack of gratitude for, you know, American uh, aid, uh, Iron Dome. I mean, the cooperation with America, America and Israel share very strong interests. Look, you saw, you saw this crazy faux pas of Trump before he left, where the news story came out that he revealed. Uh, uh, yeah. That story, I think, is so misunderstood, by the way. The witch, the... That he talked to the Russians. He talked to the Russian yeah. foreign minister and the Russian uh, American ambassador. Right. Who's implicated in all sorts of shenanigans, which, again, is not the topic of our podcast. But he revealed right. to them this ISIS plot. And then, and here was really the key thing, he revealed the, the city where this information was uncovered. Now, I don't get exactly how that works. But somehow you could reverse engineer, if you know the city whose intelligence agency uncovered the information. So the concern was that he inadvertently, and I'm, I'm right. will assume inadvertently, I think, is a fair assumption. He inadvertently yeah. revealed... An, uh, By the way, uh, say that, that presidents do that all the time. Because presidents don't really know, like their staff has to keep them on, I, I forget who, uh, someone, like normal person, wrote an article about that. Like that's what your staff has to do, is to keep you, because presidents don't really know necessarily well you have a staff uh, briefing before him that says this is okay to say at this meeting and this isn't okay to say at that meeting yeah, but they're getting, so, they're getting so know, much information about so many different things for so you know that their know, staff has to keep them i know bob woodward said publicly that presidents have told him things and then the staff comes running up to him and said don't put that in a newspaper yeah right but that's that's i think a different order of magnitude than revealing it to no, really so scary russian well, I mean, well, I mean, again, he's reading the Russian guys the day after. I mean, whatever. It's... And the crazy thing that, that, that what he said to the Israeli press, and I want you to know, I never said Israel. I never said the name Israel. So that's another one that you got wrong. But, but how this is how this all relates is how you know it, this is not separate from these from Abbas and Netanyahu knowing what's going on there and like 
really thinking how long does Trump have? I mean, and even if he's even if he makes his four four year terms, how how much strength is he going to have if he's constantly fighting internal American politics? It makes him a lot weaker on the world scene, also. Right. So right. foreign leaders have to take that into account that in a troubled yeah. presidency with dropping approval ratings, he may not have yeah. the clout to carry through with much how, at all. How much risk am I going to take as a leader of my country? To be in favor, to find favor in this guy, you know. So we so. are betting status quo. We're betting that's going to be like every other one, unfortunately, and it's just going to add up to a lot of smoke, a lot of meetings, a lot of smoke, a lot of blaming of Israel in the end. So the question is, when it calls down, how much is is how much is Netanyahu going to get it, or is it going to go? Is there going to be something different in that now, and maybe you know? Can we handle it in a way that we'll get blamed less, you mean? Yeah. A little bit like the beginning of the into second intifada. You know, there was there was that point was seen like, wait a second, Israel offered a lot. And then the violence came from the Palestinian side. But that, of course, eventually switched by the end when there were a lot more Palestinians who had been killed in the second intifada and Israel started putting up a wall and da da da. So. Yeah, somehow we lost that messaging war. After offering them a state, that back to Dennis Ross said is the maximal Israeli offer. The Palestinians will never get a better deal. They turn it down, slaughter hundreds and hundreds of Israelis, and we lost that messaging war. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. Maybe that should be definitely in a podcast in and of itself. Can I ask you an ugly question? And, and you're right, this is a topic in and of itself, but I'm just going to throw it out there. Do you think events like the ones in Manchester, I mean, this just horrible. I mean, murdering children with suicide bombing. Do you think this will have an effect on how the world sees the Israel story? Not at all. I don't either. Why don't you think it so? Never does. Israel was like, it was, oh, after, after 9-11 happens in the midst of the horrible second intifada here, where, where we're getting kids buses, you know, whatever, public buses blown up multiple times a day of 20 people, 25 people at a time. Right. Which is which is terrible. And it was a go. Now the world will see after the after what happened, 9-11 yeah, for a month, maybe maybe a bit longer. I mean, it was empathy. But in the end of the day, they the Israel see the, the 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 violence coming from the Palestinians to some degree is seen as justified, even in mainstream Western circles. Even to say, well, terrorism is bad, but we understand it's because this is conflict right. that Israel's essentially the powerful one in, and therefore the, the you know. Whereas right. to see, and in England they say, no, what do we have to do? Yeah, but you have people fighting in Syria, people that no, but that's you know. Yeah. But we did celebrate the fifty. You know, today I was teaching in Emunava Omanu, and I. Yeah. And I did a presentation about Jerusalem. I did something a little self-indulgent. I put up pictures that I take of Jerusalem. I said to them, look how amazing it is. God could have made our capital city. Could it, we, we could have, the Jews could have chosen a capital city that's ugly and dingy. And look at these pictures of Jerusalem. Look at the, that our capital gets to be this gorgeous city where everywhere you look, you see beauty. And then as I was showing them, eh, just a few pictures that I took just to, you know, it's like an artsy school. So I thought they would appreciate a few uh, 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 amateur attempts at making a nice photograph. And then I finished them and I said, I said, I just want you guys to think about this. You know, 10 pictures. 
What would our grandparents and great-grandparents have given to be able to just see those pictures? Yeah. In their lifetimes, they never dreamed that they would ever have access to pictures like this. And we get to walk around in this day in, day yeah. out. We get to sit in the traffic. <laughs> yeah, I had a little bit we of a traffic just, headache today. But... No, but that's it. That's but like you're right. That, as you said to me today, that's something, even that's something to celebrate. Yeah. And, and the fact that we don't always see how we're going to get out of difficult situations doesn't mean that we will not get out of difficult situations. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be, you know, working hard towards building a, a, a rosy future that we can expect here in Israel. Absolutely. I mean, who would, it, it, this, this week, 50, 50 years ago, or I was thinking, I was, you know, talked with my family at the Shabbos table and our guests about, you know, the Shabbos before the outbreak of the Six Day War. What were they thinking? Terror. They were terrified that this was going to be another another Holocaust. And then it just like that, the blink of an eye, the whole situation turned around. In a way that most people could not have predicted. Could not have predicted. Even even the even the uh, the great uh, advisors in the army were not predicting that. They were not. They, Pen- they, the Pentagon did. The, the predictions, no. The predictions were that if Israel strikes first, they will be they will be victorious in a week. It, but they still no. But they said there will be still be high, high heavy casualties. Yeah, they thought there would be heavier casualties. But they thought heavy Israel casualties. could win. If Israel preempts, they'll win in a week. If they don't, if they're invaded, right. it will take them two weeks. Correct. That's what but the Pentagon heavy, told Abba Eben. Right, but heavy casualties. Yeah, and, heavier casualties. And, and, and they did not. And they did not talk about conquering Jerusalem or no. those. They talked about just. No, that was just with Egypt. Yeah, I'm saying just pushing the army off. Just yeah, yeah, yeah. It, Again, it wasn't the uh, the Golan, the Yehuda Shamron. It's the Six Day War. One war Sinai, is it they, three? Sinai, is it, they knew because they is did it, it three mini six, wars? What? Is three it six, mini wars. It's three mini wars, right? Well, it's not mini because those are Israel's wars are mostly you know Israel has to win its wars quick because right. it doesn't have the depth. But, but it's sort of like, it's sort of like three two day wars. Yeah, two days in Sinai, two days in the, the next two days in the Shudu Bishamram, and last two days in the Golan. Right. Amazing. 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 It's and really unfortunately, right. you know, it had to be at the loss of, uh, you know, there are whole sections of cemeteries with the fallen, so you don't want to take it for granted when you say it's amazing, of, you know, the people killed and the people wounded. But, 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 but look at Yerushalayim today. Right, that's the point. Tens of thousands of people came to Yerushalayim today. We're getting somewhere. This is something really worth... The, right now, as we speak, there's a big concert in Jerusalem. It's just... We're, we're in the middle of something unparalleled in the history of human civilization. The rebirth of a nation taken off the stage of history. We lost Jerusalem in the year 70. And now it's 2017, and we're having huge open-air concerts to celebrate it. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. Absolutely. And I think with that high note, we should end before we get more cynical again. Or maudlin and start crying. Because yeah. that's up next, too. All right, man. All right. Thanks so much, everybody. Bye-bye, Alan. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. This has been JU Israel, the Teacher's Lounge podcast. Please check out our website, juisrael.jerusalemu.org, for episodes, blog posts, and contact information. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever you use for podcasts. 
but you knew that, right? Uh, you can follow our Facebook page at the Teachers Lounge Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ju Israel Gap. Please keep in touch with us with questions, comments, feedback, and suggestions. And if you know somebody who would enjoy our podcast in general or an episode in particular, we love it when people recommend us. Thank you, guys. Thank you.